What's up, Three Circle family? It's Sermon 52. We have made it to the last Sunday of 2020. And I'm usually not in favor of handing out participation trophies, but in this case, I think everyone deserves one, don't you? In just a few short days, 2020 will be completely over. And today, I want to talk with you about two convictions I think that we all need to carry with us into 2021. Post-2020, I am convinced more than ever that God's primary plan for reaching the world through the gospel is not gathering large audience around hyper-anointed individuals on a weekly basis. As much as I love gathering with large crowds, worshiping with incredibly gifted musicians and songwriters and listening to stellar communicators, it cannot be the only factor in preaching the gospel to those that need to hear it. While this is certainly a part of God's plan, it is not the totality of His plan. No, His plan is raising up people just like you in the power of the Holy Spirit and sending them out to proclaim the gospel. So to that end, I want to walk you through the story of an ordinary guy. If you grew up in church and heard his story, you never thought of him as ordinary. But I want to show you that he is in fact just a regular, everyday, ordinary guy. He's not an apostle. He didn't walk around with Jesus. He's not a leader in the church. He's not some great theologian. He is just a part, a member of the church, if you will, just like you. And as we walk through his story, we will discover two convictions that shaped his life that should most definitely shape ours today. Know this before moving forward. His life can serve as a model for the so-called ordinary modern Christian today. This gentleman that we're going to be looking at, his name is Stephen, and his story comes at a crucial time in the first century church. We read about him in Acts 6, 7, and 8. It's important for you to know that up until this point, as far as we know, the gospel had not left the borders of Jerusalem, even though it was clearly communicated to do so. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power, this is Jesus talking, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, this verse of Scripture is baked into our mission. It's baked into our name here at Three Circle Church. What did Jesus say? He's in essence saying, preach the gospel. Where? In Jerusalem? That would be the local circle because that's where they are. In Judea and Samaria, that would be the regional circle. It's just outside of Jerusalem. And then to the ends of the earth, that would be the global circle. Now, up until this point, the story that I'm about to talk with you about, it had not left the local circle just yet. This is all about to change with Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen gets selected to hand out food to widows so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now we would look at this, this job description, and deem it as not being that important. He wasn't an elected preacher. He wasn't the group president. He wasn't writing any books. He wasn't getting ready to preach on the conference circuit. He wasn't this great theologian. He was just selected by the apostles and the other disciples to be a table waiter. He was the Mills on Wheels guy in the first church. Listen to how they put it in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. It says, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together, and this is what they said. They said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. So they passed this, what we would deem as a lowly job, onto Stephen and to others. Now Stephen gladly accepted and did his job so well that it got the attention of many in the community, especially the Jewish priests, 
And they began to turn to faith in droves as Stephen's and others persuaded them, preached to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. This eventually got the attention of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling Jewish authority. And they, of course, didn't like it because they were the ones that were rooting to kill Jesus. But I love this. Even they, the Sanhedrins, these were the intellectuals. They were brilliant. They were the smarty smarties. They could not stand up to Stephen. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 10. It says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In Acts 7, they drug him in front of the Jewish council, and Stephen proceeded to preach the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts, and probably the least seeker-friendly, if I could add that as well. It's basically a detailed account of the history of Israel that pointed them towards Jesus, and he in essence says, your parents, they killed all the prophets. The people before you killed all the prophets, and you killed Jesus, so you're just like your parents. Now, needless to say, that didn't go over very well. Listen to how they reacted and what happened next. So this is how the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, this is how they reacted. In Acts 7, verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. You've got to be pretty angry to grind your teeth at someone. Then verse 55, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, talking about Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. They didn't want to receive this message. Verse 58, Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. Now, if you grew up in the 60s, this is not the same type of stoning, okay? This is where they would actually take large rocks and they would throw it at an individual, striking them until they were deceased. And this is what they're doing to Stephen. And the witnesses, they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul would eventually become converted to Christianity, become one of the most legendary and unbelievable missionaries to ever live. And as they were stoning Stephen, look at his reaction. Look at their reaction and then contrast it to Stephen's reaction. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's a soft way to say Stephen is no longer with us. They have taken him out. They've killed him. Now, this would be a terrible place to end a chapter, wouldn't you agree? But that's what they did. This is where Acts chapter 7 comes to a conclusion. And I'm not being critical of the Holy Spirit because chapters and verses were added later. They weren't inspired. So let's just pretend like the chapter didn't end and let's go right into Acts chapter 8 beginning with verse 1. It says, as a result of this, as a result of Stephen preaching a sermon, as a result of him uh, being pulled out into the street, as a result of him uh, uh, sort of talking to the Sanhedrin in the fashion that he did, that great persecution arose inside of the church. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now remember what Jerusalem is for the church. That would be their local circle. Remember what Jesus said before He left the planet. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to preach gospel to local circle first. So Jerusalem first. And they were all scattered. Now listen, this is, this is important. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, this would have been the first time that Judea and Samaria were mentioned apart from Acts 1.8. 
So seven chapters have transpired, and we haven't heard anything about Judea and Samaria, but now all of a sudden we're hearing about it. Why? Because Stephen being stoned to death, it caused great persecution to fall upon the church. And they scattered the church, and they went into the region of Judea and Samaria. Now watch this. This is awesome. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, I, I purposely left off three words of that verse of Scripture. Let me tell you why in just a moment. And there arose on that day a great persecution, we've already read this, against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of, you know it, Judea and Samaria. But look at this comma here in these few words that Luke was very intentional of plopping right in there. Except the apostles. Where are the apostles? Like these are the, these are the, the bosses of the church basically. This is who Jesus left in charge of the church. So where are they? They are still in Jerusalem. Now, if I were you, I would underline those few words because it's such a textual clue. It's so important. So underline the words, except the apostles. Now, what happened to these people that were driven out of Jerusalem? What did they do? What was their response to being scattered throughout Judea and Samaria? Well, it tells us what happened in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Listen to what happens. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So what do we see here? We actually see a fulfillment of Acts 1.8. A, a second fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, the gospel was preached. 3,000, 4,000 people were added to the church. They baptized people on a regular basis. They were basically this small group that was convening inside of their local circle. But now because of persecution, they're pushed out into Judea and Samaria. And this is important. This is important for us to understand. And if we just skim over it, you know, we might miss what God is trying to teach us here. This is the first time that the gospel is leaving the borders of Jerusalem. Now, I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. It, it, this is the first time ever. Like, this is paramount because Acts 1.8 is is being fulfilled. It's rippled into now the regional circle. But it's important for you to understand that not a single apostle was involved. Luke was ultra-intentional in saying, except for the apostles. Stephen's the Mills on Wheels guy. The guy who was just an ordinary guy. The guy who just fell in love with Jesus and fell in love with the message of the gospel. He was used by God to press the gospel out into the regional circle. I believe that Stephen's story is given to us as an example of how Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is supposed to be fulfilled. Now can you see all of the textual clues that were just put in here? Any scholar will tell you that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is is the outline for the entire New Testament church, for the entire first century church, for the entire book of Acts. It's the outline for the entire book. And here we have the first time that it's being accomplished outside of Jerusalem. And what you'll see is that it's an ordinary layman that's leading the charge, and it's not an apostle. It's not someone who has apostolic power. It's not the people that walk beside Jesus, but rather it's this ordinary individual who was given the ability to lead the charge. You see, Stephen is a picture 
of the so-called ordinary Christian and what they are supposed to look like and what will happen in the world when they do. When you catch on to the fact that God wants to use you to spread the gospel into the areas that you come in contact with on a regular basis, when you have that realization, then man, watch out. The world is going to transform underneath the weight of the gospel when we realize this. And this leads me to the first conviction. The first conviction of two that I believe that can transform the world is pulled from the story of Stephen, but it should definitely transfer over to us today. And it's this conviction. God wants to use me. Now that's very simplistic, right? There's nothing profound about that. But as Jesus followers, we think in terms of of starters and bench warmers, don't we? We look at people who are professional clergy, those who have theological degrees, those that have been trained in seminary, and all of that is great, and there is a a purpose and a place for all of that. But we kind of look at them as the starters, don't we? Like they're the ones that are starting, and we're the ones that are kind of on the sidelines rooting them on. In fact, there is a contingent of people inside of the framework of the local church they actually believe that it's the, it's the sole responsibility of those that are in vocational, paid vocational ministry to be the people to spread the gospel out. But listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers for what? Why did he give them those specific giftings to bless the church? Well, in verse 12, it tells you why he gave it. It says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So really our responsibility is not to be the people who are pushing the gospel out there into the marketplace. That's a part of our responsibility. But our primary responsibility is to equip people like you to go into the marketplace and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are there to equip the saints. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what you are. It's talking specifically to you right there in your living room, in your car, wherever you're watching this broadcast, it is talking to you. In other words, there are no sidelines in the kingdom of God. There is no second and third string. There is no JV. All of us are first string and all of us have a responsibility to leverage ourselves, to leverage our giftings for the sharing of the gospel. That is included in the call to follow Jesus. And as we leave 2020 and enter into 2021, we need to be convinced of the fact that God wants to use us. Not just people on big platforms preaching to big crowds. God wants to use every single one of us. If Stephen's story teaches us anything, it should be that God wants to use all of us. And I know you're thinking, me? Like like me. Yes, you. God wants to use you, and there is no but. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know that God wants to use you. And when we wake up every morning, we should wake up with this just conviction burning deep inside of our souls. Like whenever your alarm clock goes off, mine goes off at 4.30 in the morning, and when my alarm clock goes off, I should should wake up with the sensation and the feeling and the conviction in my heart that today, on this day, God wants to use me. God wants to use me. 
Like that's a conviction that should wash over us like a tsunami on a regular basis. It doesn't matter if you consider yourself extraordinary. It doesn't matter if you think that you're just some ordinary status quo. I'm just kind of a follower of Jesus, but I don't feel special and I definitely don't feel like I have the skill set to be able to, to preach the gospel to those that desperately need to hear it. God wants to use you. And it's time for us as followers of Jesus collectively to stand up and to realize that this conviction needs to be a part of our everyday life. In fact, historically, ordinary people, just like you, have been used to spread the gospel throughout the world exponentially more than apostolic planning. The few words, except the apostles, the trained theologians, that's just an example of that in Acts chapter 8. That's just a small example of Luke purposely inserting that. You'll see throughout the first century church that there were a lot of things that happened. In fact, the gospel spread like wildfire absent of the apostles. Stephen Neal a very famous church historian, he wrote a book called The History of the Christian Mission. And in his very first chapter, this is what he said. He said, the only thing more remarkable than the rapidity of the spread of the gospel in the first century is its anonymity. <laughs> That's such a powerful statement. In other words, the gospel spread more through anonymous sources than well-known biblical characters. Things happen inside of the New Testament, and we don't even know who is responsible for it. At the end of the first century, there were three gospel-centric missionary-sending church, churches. There was the church in Antioch, there was the church in Alexandria, and then there was the church in Rome. And you know what's remarkable about those three churches that were basically the most gospel-central churches uh, that we had inside of the first century is that we don't even know who planted them. Who planted these churches? I don't know. Acts chapter 11 gives a snapshot of Antioch. It talks about how it was, how it was planted. And when it goes to the part where it's supposed to give you the name of the individual that planted it, you know what it says? It says some brothers. Just some brothers. Luke didn't even think it was important to write their names down. It's just some good, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, everyday followers of Jesus Christ. Just some brothers. What about Rome? Like Rome, man. Rome had to be like planted by someone who was a stallion. It had to have been one of the apostles. You may have heard the rumor that Peter actually planted Rome. Peter didn't plant Rome. He pastored Rome, but he didn't plant it. Paul longed to plant a church in Rome. If you look at his, his story, man, his life mission was to plant a church in Rome. That's all he ever talked about was getting to Rome. The trajectory of his life was pointing towards Rome. He wanted to get to Rome. In Acts 28, it gives a snapshot once again, just like it gave in Acts chapter 11 of Antioch, of Paul, and by this time, he's a shell of his former self, He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked multiple times. He's been hurt. He's been thrown into prison. 
and he drags himself. I want you to visualize this with me. He drags himself across the border of Rome. And you know who greeted him there? We don't know. It just says some brothers. Some brothers from where? Some brothers from the church that was already established in Rome. You see, the church actually beat Paul to Rome. And it was just established by some good old ordinary run-of-the-mill followers of Jesus Christ. That's amazing, isn't it? Two of the most epic churches to ever be planted, and they were just planted by ordinary individuals. That's how the gospel spreads. The gospel spreads through ordinary people who know that their primary calling in life is to lead people to Jesus. Well, how do I know if that's my calling? Well, let me ask you a question. Are you a follower of Jesus? If the answer is yes, if you're nodding your head right now, then that's your calling. We're all called to share the gospel to everyone that we come in contact with. It's crucial for us to understand how the gospel is supposed to be spread locally, regionally, and globally, and it works. It works. I'll prove it. Let's do a little quick math problem. There's this region of the world called the 1040 window. It's in the 10th and 40th parallel. And right now, we have about 40,000 evangelical missionaries there. Uh, you know, Three Circle Church is basically an evangelical church. And we have about 40,000 missionaries, not us, but the church, the global church, has that many people that are there. And we need way more than that. You know how many U.S. citizens are holding secular jobs inside of the 1040 window? About 2 million. According to a census, 36% of them claim to be born again followers of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that that's probably not 100% true. They just ticked the box, right? They just got down to the religious section of the application that they filled out, and they said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So let's just cut that number in half. And then let's take a third off of that number. You know how much that would be? 240,000. So think about this. If we could convince just just a small percentage of the two million who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ to leverage their lives, to share the gospel with those that they come in contact with, we would have 240,000 more missionaries inside of the 1040 window, which has the most unreached people groups, those that have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ just yet, and it wouldn't cost the church another dime. That's how the gospel can spread. Let's bring it a little closer to home. What if we woke up as followers of Jesus Christ every single morning and we just said, God, I know that you want to use me. I know that you want to use me. Show me the opportunities to share and to spread the gospel today. It would flip this region. It would flip this state. It would flip this nation upside down if believers like me and you woke up with that conviction inside of our hearts. It's not going to happen by just planting more churches. It's going to happen by people who are inside of those churches realizing that the spread of the gospel is in their hands. It's not in the hands of government. It's in your hands, and it's always been that way. It has always been that way. This is not a new idea. It's not some brand new philosophy this is as old as the sun, and it just makes sense. Why? Because you're the ones that have access. Like, it would be cool if you could take one of the pastors with you to your meeting, but they can't come. 
It would be cool if, if they went to work with you, but they can't come. Like you are the only ones that, 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 that can go to your job. You have access. You have access to corporate conference rooms. You have access to brothers that you ride back and forth with to various projects. You have access with colleagues that you come in contact with on a regular basis. And that's how the gospel will spread is when we realize that the access that we have been given is so that we can leverage the preaching of the gospel to those who need to hear it. Now, I know what you're thinking. I can't do that. And you know what? You're right, but you're not off the hook. Well, if I can't do that, then how am I not off the hook? It leads to the second conviction. The second conviction is the Holy Spirit fills me. God wants to use me, but then the second conviction that we need to feel deep in our souls today is that the Holy Spirit fills me. Now, did you notice the confidence that Stephen had? I mean, the brother was confident all the way up until the end, all the way up until they put him to sleep, right? He was confident. What gave this ordinary dude the confidence to stand toe-to-toe with some of the most highly intellectual people of his day? What gave him the confidence to stand up and preach in Acts chapter 7? What gave him the confidence to, to pray to Jesus even when he was being stoned to death? He wasn't an apostle. He didn't have the advantage of being beside Jesus for three and a half years like the apostles. Now that would be pretty cool, right? Is to have Jesus beside us. Man, I've always like been envious of the disciples. I've always thought, what would it be like if like Jesus was beside me, Right? Like, that would be awesome if Jesus was beside me. Like, you get a COVID positive, boom, not anymore. Jesus heals you. All of a sudden, it's negative. He's with you at small group. You run out of checks mix, boom, he fills it right back up. Your dog dies, boom, he resurrects Chopper from the dead. Your cat dies, and he takes you out in the yard, and he digs a hole with you. He buries that cat in the name of Jesus forever. Stephen didn't have the advantage of Jesus being beside us. But it's better that way. He was filled with the Spirit according to what we read about Him in Acts 6, 7, and 8. He was filled with the Spirit. A homework assignment is that you can go back and read how many times it says that Stephen was filled, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He didn't have Jesus beside him. He had the Holy Spirit inside of him. And it's better while Jesus was, while Jesus being beside us would be awesome, it would be amazing, amazing, Jesus inside of you through the power of the Holy Spirit is better than Jesus beside you. Now, I'm not blaspheming there because Jesus actually said that. If you look at John chapter 16, verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage. He's talking to the disciples right before he leaves. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper, the Helper is the Holy Spirit, He cannot come. It's to your advantage. It's obvious to Jesus when He says, hey, it's to your advantage that I leave, that I'm no longer beside you because I'm sending the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to be inside of you. Well, how in the world is that to your advantage? It was obvious to Jesus and now it should be obvious to us because possessing something is inside of you, 
Like being able to, to do something because of it being inside of you is way, more the, is way more important and way more powerful than just being a spectator of something that is beside you. Did you get what I'm saying? Let me say that again. Possessing power that's in you is way better than watching it beside you. It's inside of you. And possessing the power of the Holy Spirit is what gave Stephen his confidence. It wasn't him. It's not going to be you. It's going to be the power of the Holy Spirit that lives on the, the inside of you. And if you don't know this, let me just go ahead and let you in on a secret. Lean forward for dramatic effect. The Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Christ, He's in there. He's in you. And the knowledge of knowing that the Holy Spirit is on the inside of you should give you all the confidence that you need in order to share the gospel. It's an unexplainable mystery, but you are filled with the same Spirit. It's not a different Spirit. It's not a watered-down Holy Spirit. It's not a JV Holy Spirit. You are filled with the same Holy Spirit that Stephen was filled with, and it gave him the confidence to be able to withstand the, the heat and the harshness of the Sanhedrin all the way up until the very end. You have that same Holy Spirit. Now, Romans chapter 8, it helps us to contextualize the kind of spirit we have living on the inside of us. Listen to what it says. Romans 8, 11, it says, The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now that's pretty awesome. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives on the inside of you. So you have resurrection power. Do you get what I'm saying now? No, you don't get what I'm saying, do you? Imagine this. Imagine how many of you watched The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. That was incredible, right? Imagine if you had the same skill set the same drive, the same motivation, the same abilities to be able to do with a basketball with what Michael Jordan was able to do with a basketball living on the inside of you. If you walked onto a basketball court, wouldn't you have confidence if you had that type of power living on the inside of you? Of course you would. Could you imagine dunking like Mike? Could you imagine dribbling like Mike? Could you imagine having the same drive to win like Michael Jordan? Like Mike, if I could be like Mike, right? If we had that same skill set living on the inside of us, we would be unstoppable and we would have a tremendous amount of confidence every time that we stepped onto the basketball court. It would be incredible. Well, this is in essence what Romans 8 is saying to you. Romans 8 is saying it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It dwells on the inside of you. Resurrection power lives on the inside of you, and with that knowledge should come a holy confidence. You may not be able to do it. You may not be able to get the job done, but the Holy Spirit that lives on the inside of you can, and God wants to use you, and the Holy Spirit fills me. That equals the ability to be able to talk to people about the life-changing transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This means that we should be excited for the potential of the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. And if we're not, then it kind of showcases how far away we are from living out the message of Jesus. God wants to use you and the Holy Spirit is inside of you. What else do you need? God wants to use you 
and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, what else do you need? If the story of Stephen teaches us anything, it should be that God uses ordinary people through the power of His Holy Spirit to extend the gospel to the world. So please, I don't want you to just look at this as another sermon. I don't want you to look at this as just another, another fill-in, another time where you just kind of check the box. I want you to take the words that are coming out of my mouth seriously, and I want you to begin to think about how God wants to use you. And I want you to come to the knowledge that the Holy Spirit is on the inside of you. Well, why should I? The reality is, people are going to die and go to hell. If we don't start sharing the gospel. People are going to die and go to hell. You see, the greatest pandemic is not COVID. The greatest pandemic that ever hit this world was the fall. It was the moment that Adam and Eve took a bite of the forbidden fruit and changed the trajectory of humanity forever. Talk about a global pandemic. But Christ, who's referred to as the second Adam, He came and He took our place on the cross. He came and He absorbed the consequences of our sin and we have accepted it as followers of Jesus Christ, why wouldn't we want to share that great news with everybody that we come in contact with? In America, about 3 million people die a year. That's 57,000 people a day. How many of them are dying without someone like you sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? I stumbled across this video clip from a guy named Penn if you've ever heard of the show Penn and Teller, very famous magician. He's also a pretty vocal atheist. Doesn't believe that there's a God. But he captures what I'm trying to convey to you better than I ever could. So watch this. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and you know sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we give those away. He had the the joke book and the and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, I, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props in the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show. And uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and... Um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition um, 
I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So what are we going to do about it? especially now that we know that God wants to use us and the Holy Spirit fills us. You know what would give the entire pastoral staff an immense amount of joy in 2021? If that if more conversions to the gospel happened outside of the four walls of the brick-and-mortar church with ordinary people like you leading the charge, people being led to faith in corporate conference rooms, hallways, living rooms, driveways, all because you stepped into the conviction that God wants to use me. And I know that the Holy Spirit fills me. I want to say a very dangerous prayer over you. And as, you're, as I'm praying, you can pray as well. Because the Holy Spirit has the ability to hear both of us at the same time. And the prayer that I'm going to pray is just that God would give you the opportunities in 2021 to be able to share the gospel with those that so desperately need it in the world in which we live. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we've learned anything from the story of Stephen, is that you want to use ordinary individuals. What an unbelievable act we see is that you're using a group of people outside of apostolic planning to preach the gospel into Judea and Samaria and ultimately into the ends of the earth. And Lord, I know that you want to use those that are watching this broadcast right now. I know that there are people that they come in contact with on a regular basis 
that need Jesus. And Lord, I pray that they would wake up every morning with the conviction, with the conviction that you want to use them and that they would have the knowledge that the Holy Spirit fills them and let that equal the confidence that they need to preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.